Well, thanks, band. Is it just me? Or are junior hires just looking older and older nowadays? Oh, wait, oh no, that was, those aren't junior hires. Sorry, sorry. Uh, staff members. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. There's a couple of housekeeping items I need to get out of the way. No, I'm not wearing a tie. Uh, in case you're wondering where my tie was, I'm not going to put one on. Um, and uh, these are, uh, I did not buy these on the resale market. Um, if I did, I, that, that would have been a little bit out of my price range. So um, I bought these from a guy I know named Jeremy Volo. Um, and um, I just needed to say that for the recording. So Jeremy, he's sick of me going around and telling people like, these aren't like the real Nikes. They're not like the real thing. So uh, you're welcome, Jeremy. Uh, so it's really a, it's a privilege to be here this morning and, and uh, talk to you about this topic to finish up our summer series. Um, I always have the joy and privilege of being the last guy Austin calls when everybody else is out of town. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a role I, I relish. Um, as, I ta- as I got to thinking about rest, um, I thought as naturally one does when he, when he thinks about this topic, I thought about first dates. Um, guys, if you ever build up enough courage to ask a girl out on a first date and she actually says yes, well, then you've got, you've got a job in front of you. You've got to come up with some good get-to-know-you questions. You can't just sit there the whole time. Uh, you can't wait for her to talk. You've got to initiate the conversation. A little tip for you, a little life tip. You've got to ask good questions. And you got to think of some fun ones. You know, there's like the resume questions like, what do you want to do with your life? Where do you see yourself in five years? Like, how many children do you want? Don't ask that question on a first date. Um, So, but then you want some good fun ones. And uh, here's some good ones. Like, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, If you could be another person for a day, who would that be and why? Um, And then one of my personal favorites, what's the longest you've ever gone without sleep? Uh, it actually will generate some pretty fun stories. Um, and since this is like a, a first date, it's kind of like a group date because our group's so small, um, I'll share mine. So uh, actually, my wife suggested to do this. Let me get some numbers. Okay, longest you've ever gone without sleep in your life. Shout it out. 38. 38. Pre-med life. Pre-med life. I love that. At least it's for a good cause, right? Two and a half days. Two and a half days. So how many hours? I don't know. I really like all the Wow. Uh, good reason not to sleep, not so good reason not to sleep. So two and a half days. Okay, anybody else? That's impressive. 48, so two straight days. That's, yeah. Oh, traveling, yep, see? So that's where mine is. Mine's a travel story. I, I went 54 hours without sleep once, and facts, um, don't recommend it. I uh, think I'm still like seeing things from it. And that was like 15 years ago. So I was coming back from China um, and we woke up in Beijing. This was probably 2006, a while ago. And we toured the city the whole day. Woke up at like 6 a.m. Beijing time. Our flight got delayed. We flew out of Beijing to LAX at like midnight. And I can't sleep on planes. I'm really bad at it. So um, I did not sleep the whole flight. Got here. And this, I lived on the East Coast at the time. So then I still had to make two more connections to North Carolina uh, still haven't slept, get to North Carolina. One of my buddies I haven't seen in a year or two picks me up. We hang out all day, uh, going around in Raleigh, North Carolina. Then my parents finally pick me up. We drive two hours to my house in Virginia and we get there and I'm just about to go to bed and there's a knock on the front door and it's my best friend I haven't seen all summer. And he's like, dude, you're back. Let's go to the movies. I actually did not go to the movies. I told him to get out of there. So um, I actually fell asleep while he was telling me about going to the movies. So but I, I counted up the next day and it was 54 hours. 
and which is two days and six hours, so probably not as long as you. Um, so it was it was so unnatural, right? Like I felt weird for days, and I felt tired for days. Part of it was probably the jet lag. Part of it was the actual fact that I stayed awake for about 54 hours. Um, and it was just rest is a natural rhythm. God has built that into who we are. Uh, we have to rest from time to time. And it's such an integral part of our lives. And I think we resist it being an integral part of our lives. I think especially nowadays. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, Taylor said, I've been thinking about this topic and writing about it. I wrote something for the seminary. And as I've been thinking about it, I've, uh, I've done some research and discovered that one of the, the, the words people use to describe the current age we live in is the restless age. They call it the restless age. Uh, people are struggling with anxiety more than they ever have. People are, are moving more than they ever have. People are dissatisfied. Uh, technology, there's a lot of research that goes into this. If you use it too much, it, it affects your sleep. Uh, we never turn our brains off. There's always one more thing we could be doing. And I think it's had a lot of da- damaging effects on our society as a whole. And it can certainly have a lot of damaging effects on your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's especially difficult for young people because all of you that are here that are ages 18 to say 25, you grew up in a technologically infused age. You don't remember a time when there wasn't a phone. There wasn't always something you could be looking at, a screen you could be engaged in, uh, one more page you could look at. That, that is work you're doing. Your eyes, your mind is engaging with that content. So you, you, all of you are going to have to fight throughout your life to rest well. Not just to, I know we think, oh, I'm just scrolling through Instagram. That can't, that's not always actual rest, at least not the biblical version of it. So I want to help you understand what true rest is today and help you understand the priority it has in your life as you uh, go through serving Christ. You're not going to make it through the next 40 years of serving Christ unless you learn to take a break from time to time, to rest, to recalibrate your life. You will be burnt out. You'll be exhausted, whether it's from work or ministry or relationships or whatever it may be. We need to understand the value of this topic. So first, let's define it. I want to define this for you. So um, if you have pens, here's a good place to start writing notes. Rest is glorifying God by accepting your creatureliness, or maybe said a little better English, by accepting that you are a creature, and secondly, trusting wholly in the grace of Jesus Christ. Accepting that you're a creature and trusting entirely in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's my definition. That's our definition of rest this morning. And we're going to break it into two parts. So there are two acts in this message. Act one is we rest our bodies because we are creatures. And then we'll talk about act two, which is trusting wholly in the grace of Jesus Christ. So The first point, first act we're going to go through is we rest our bodies because we are creatures. All right, when you think about your identity, who you are, what makes you who you are, there are some objective facts about you. Your height, can't change that. Your hair hair color, you can artificially change it, but it is what it is. Your eye color, it is what it is. Your skin color, it is what it is. It's the way you're made, and that's good. So, so much of who we are, we did not choose. How many of you chose to, be, to have the parents you have? None of you chose to have the parents you have. How many of you chose to grow up in the area you grew up in? You did not choose that. Someone else chose these things for you. 
You are dependent on others for your, safe, your, your sense of identity. Uh, we certainly are seeing this being a, a major matter of controversy in the world today, uh, this sense of identity, but your, your gender, God shows it for you, male or female. Um, and y- the fact that you are a creature shapes who you are. As you think about who you are, you need to realize I am a created being. I don't get to decide what, uh, what makes me one way or the other. God decides that for you. Now, there are certain elements of your life you should grow and change in, but some key elements of your identity is that you are a creature. In fact, it's the very first thing that God says about you in Genesis 1.26. Uh, he says, let us make man. Before he identifies us as human beings, use the word man, he used the verb to describe us as made, make. And we somehow forget this. We act like we just showed up and we forget that God created us. Psalm 139 says, for you were formed for, for you form my inward parts, talking, the psalmist talking about God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's that word made again. You are created. And if this very first fact about you is that you're a creature, well, the primary identity of God that's given to him in Genesis 1 is that he is the creator. He's the one who made you. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created, made the heavens and the earth. And then we again see that, let us make man. So God is the actor. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And because God is the creator, guess what? He gets to design you. He gets to call the shots. You don't get to. And he has designed us with a specific purpose in mind, and that's to be dependent on him, to be in relationship with him. That is built into our identity. And he doesn't wind us up. The creator doesn't wind us up like a clock and send us off on our way. Um, it's not one of those, you've seen those toys. My kids like those toys where you, you, you know, wind them up and then you put them down the ground and they just kind of walk across the floor. That's not how God designed us. He designed us to be continually, constantly in relationship with him, dependent on him. We are dependent on him for everything, including our next breath. And that's his intention from the beginning. We see this in Genesis 3, that God would commune with Adam and Eve. Each day he would walk with them in the garden. He created them for communion. And as part of his creation and as part of his keeping them dependent upon him, he designed rest to be a key part of their lives. And we see that Adam put God to sleep when he made Eve. So sleep exists before the fall. And something else exists before the fall, a day of rest. God institutes this in Genesis 2.1. It says that, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he has done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Again, this is before the fall into sin. So rest is a good thing. God institutes it even for himself. He designs a, a, a day of rest after creating the world. Now, obviously for God, rest looks like completing his perfect work. It doesn't work like recharging his battery. God doesn't need that. Um, it's, but it's him looking at it and, and seeing the perfection of what he's done and him resting in that. Now, for us, rest looks different. It looks like dependence on the one who's made us. It looks like being the created person that we are. Um, And so if we neglect rest, if you live your life fighting against it, you're actually communicating to God that you don't like how he designed you, that you're not okay with being a created being, that you would prefer to think of yourself like him, as God, because God is the only one who's infinite. He's the only one who has no end to his power, to his ability, to his strength. And as created beings, we do. And so when you push against rest, 
you're pushing against your identity as a created being and you are saying, God, I want to be like you. That did not go well for Adam and Eve. That was the very sin that plunged the world into chaos. We read about this in Genesis 3. The serpent says, if you uh, bite, you will be like God in your knowledge of good and evil. He promised God-likeness for them in their power and their knowledge. And that's, we can have that same attitude if we're not careful, if we resist, if we resist rest, if we resist uh, um, taking a break and recognizing our creatureliness. Um, so, so what does this mean for us? Okay, so we've recognized we're creatures, we're made, we need to rest. So now we need to figure out what does that look like? What does the Bible say it looks like to be a created being? How do you rest well? So we've got four points. So under, under Act 1, uh, we, uh, we embrace our creatureliness. Um, how do we do that? There's four ways. The first one is you sleep. All right, let's, the, God's Word actually has a lot to say about sleep. Psalm 127, 1 through 2. Unless the b- Lord builds the house, the, lab- the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. What a cool phrase. God grants sleep to those he loves. So sleep is a gift from the creator. Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In Proverbs 3, 4. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Sleep is a cosmic act of worship. Did you realize that? When you sleep, you're worshiping the creator. How so? Well, it's because you are recognizing your dependence on the creator and his power, and you are trusting in him to work while you are sleeping. While you are sleeping, God is not. He continues to work. The gospel continues to go forth. The, uh, the kingdom continues to expand. While you're in a bed with your eyes closed, breathing, doing nothing. The work that God has instituted continues without you. And sleep is a daily reminder of that. I love it that sleep is something we do every day. Every day we get to the end of the day and we go, doesn't matter how much I've accomplished today, it's not enough. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much I've accomplished today, I can't do any more. I have to sleep. Uh, so God, um, God made everything in six days and then he rested. We can hardly go an afternoon without needing to take a nap, or at least I can't, but I have four kids, so I have an excuse. Um, And this is a daily reminder that you're not God. Um, And it's also, just a little side note here, one of my, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is people that are kind of proud of how little they sleep. Oh, three hours last night. I was just, you know, up all night, so much to do, so important, you know. Like, okay, I get it. There are seasons in life, as we talked about earlier, where you're going to need to neglect sleep because something uh, you need to get done or there's a crisis in your life. That happens. But if you take it as a point of pride that you get less sleep than God has designed you to get, you're taking a point as pride that you're bucking against God's creation for you. Uh, So be careful about how proud you are of your lack of sleep. Um, It's because sleep is a kind gift of your creator. You need it. Um, it's, it's sweet. It's those, something he gives to those he loves. So neglecting a gift from your creator is not something to gra- brag about. Secondly, first thing is we sleep. Uh, second thing is we enjoy God's creation. That's how we rest. 
So rest goes beyond the hours that you are asleep at night. There are ways you rest during the day while you're awake. Now, the maybe uh, uh, we don't think of rest as something like going on a hike or uh, playing a sport or whatever, but those actually can be refreshing and restful. Um, and let me show you how. So let's go to Job 38. So I, I shamelessly ripped this from Austin's series on Job. Um, and I, I want to circle back to it as we talk about this concept of rest. So Job 38, at the end of this book, no one has been more, no one is maybe in the Bible, we, we probably never meet a person that's more exhausted, more burdened, more beat down than Job. He is just, he's had so many physical uh, uh, sicknesses that have come upon him. He's lost his family, his children. Uh, he's lost his wealth. He's lost everything. I can't imagine this guy's getting a lot of sleep. He is a burdened man, and he is, his burden is, I want to understand why this happened to me. Um, and, he, and he's desperate for answers. He's desperate to understand this trial he's going, gone through. And when the Lord finally appears to him, what does he do? What does he say to Job? Does he answer his questions? He doesn't. Um, he actually points Job to creation. Um, in the midst of Job's heartache, he tells him to look um, at what God has created. So let's see this in uh, Job 38.4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Let's go down. There's so much here we could point to. Uh, 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Um, and then he continues on. Uh, let's go to chapter 39. I, 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 literally almost every verse he's pointing to creation. Verse 39.1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the name, the time when they give birth? Verse five, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. Verse 13, now we're talking about ostriches. The wings of the ostrich, ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, that the wild beast may trample them. Verse 18 talks about horses. 20 talks about locusts. I mean, we go on and on and on. So much of the creation. He points to creation to say, Job, you don't need to know the answers to my question. Stop burdening uh, to what, why this happened to you. Stop burdening yourself with this. Instead, take a look at all I've done, all I've created. Look at my power and be at, Reese, be at peace. And how does Job respond? He's, I have nothing to say. He rests his case. He has nothing to say in the face of God's awesome power in creation. Those chapters that we see in 38 and 39 and then throughout till the end of the book are a rollicking, joyous journey through the animal kingdom. And God's giving us a particular, particularly valuable lesson in how to put our lives in perspective. We need to rest sometimes because we need to remember who we are and how we depend on God. And rest gives that through sleep and it also gives us that through creation. So if you're tired, if you've had a busy day, a week of work, and you're like, what should I do on the weekend? It's been a, a, just a grind. A lot's going on. Well, first of all, get eight hours of sleep Friday night and then wake up Saturday and go for a hike. Go to the zoo. 
Why don't you go bird watching? Which personally love bird watching. It's awesome. Uh, go bird watching. You'll see the variety of birds is astonishing. The variety of God's creation. Get outside of your problems and see the bigness of the world. Go stargazing at night. You have to drive a bit out of LA to do that, but go stargazing and see how small you are and how big your God is and rest in his power and his control and your lack of it. Creation has this incredible way of bringing us back to reality. Jesus uses this in Matthew 6 when he's talking about the anxious person. So much of an anxious person is forgetting truths of God's care for them. They don't remember that God cares for them. He understands where they are. He has a plan for their lives. They've forgotten this. And where does God point them? Does he just say, don't forget that? No, he says, consider the birds. Look at those birds. Do some bird watching. He says, look at the flowers of the field. Consider the roses, how beautiful they are. I've got those. I will take care of you. So stop worrying. Rest in my care for you. I'm so concerned about this with a younger generation. Uh, In the research I've done, the amount of time young people spend with their eyes down looking at a screen as opposed to their eyes up looking at God's creation is concerning. Have you guys ever get those reports on your phone about how long you spend on your phone? We get it, I think, Sunday morning right in the middle of church. I wonder how many of you, at least that's when mine comes in, one of you in first service are like, I'll do better this week. Uh, so we all struggle with this, with the phones. And I get that. I struggle with it too. We really need to work hard to spend time putting the technology away and drinking deeply of, from God's creation. It will refresh our souls. It will give us the rest that we desperately need and it will put our lives in the correct perspective. Okay. So that's number two. Number two, we look at God's creation. Number three, you get away from the crowds and tend to the parts of your body and soul that have been neglected. Okay, you get away from the crowds and tend to the parts of your body and soul that have been neglected. Okay, so Jesus consistently does this. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 14. And we're gonna, I wanna, I'm going to read the first part of one verse and then I'm, we're going to come back to it. So I want you to see Matthew 14. Um, and it's, uh, so I keep a, keep a mark in there after I read verse number 13. So Matthew 14, 13. Um, I can turn my page. Um, okay. So Jesus, this is right after John the Baptist has died. Uh, how does Jesus respond to this? It says that, uh, he hears the news of his beloved cousin is, is, is died. And it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He does this quite a bit, actually. Jesus has been known to like, uh, um, hey, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Hey, he just kind of slipped away from us. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's very good at that. I kind of like that. Kind of like there's like a little caginess that you read about in Jesus where the crowds are always like hunting him down and he's always like slipping away for a little bit and finding a place to pray and think and meditate. And he does this after one of the most difficult moments of his life, hearing that John the Baptist has been beheaded. He slips away for a time uh, to pray and retreats. He does the same thing before he goes to Jerusalem. So shortly before he's headed up to Passover for his death, he's in Bethany, which is a little town outside of Jerusalem with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. 
was one of his favorite places to go. Typically, when he was on, in Jerusalem on business, he would not stay in Jerusalem. He would, go, he would walk away uh, at night and go outside the city and spend time with his friends. And Bethany, in fact, in John 12, we read about just before Je- Passover begins in Jerusalem, Jesus is in Bethany reclining at a table, eating with his friends. So Jesus understood the value of slipping away, of finding solitude in his life. Even hours before he died, he escapes to the Garden of Eden. Read of this in, in Luke 22. There says that Jesus, it was his custom to escape to the Mount of Olives. And before the greatest trial of his life, the most exhausting, brutal thing any human being has ever gone through, there's Jesus alone praying, understanding that he needs the solitude to understand and, and, and comprehend uh, what he's about to go through. And Jesus does this because he knows his body is weak. He is a human, just like you and me. Uh, he cannot sustain 24 hours of ministry. He needs a break. Um, he models that in his humanness uh, for us. Um, he is he's such a, uh, an example of humility that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ was willing to take a step back, understanding I need times to break. He sleeps regularly. He takes a break regularly. He spends time with his friends. He eats, understanding the need for all that. He's as human as we are. And part of that is the rest that is required of Christ. So what does this kind of taking a break look like for us? I I like to say, if you work with your body, you rest with your mind. And if you work with your mind, you rest with your body. And, And so life, we have these bodies and minds that are, are fragile compared to the Almighty, and they require times of break, and they also require times of, of energizing and refueling, so to speak. So if you work with your body, say if you're a gardener or uh, a mechanic or an athlete or, or something where you use your body regularly and you expend a lot of energy and that's your job, great. Rest for you is probably going to look like reading a book, playing a game with friends, watching a show that you can do without sinning. Um, It's going to look like resting your body and using your minds. I write for a living and I work with words all day, uh, which can make my brain feel like mush when I get home. So when I get home, I love to go for a run. Um, I love, I'm a big golfer. I love to golf. Nothing uh, refreshes me uh, other, other than time with family, I feel like then just around out there in God's creation, enjoying that. Um, I love to spend time with my kids, running around with them and playing with them. So that's refreshing to me. So that's what I mean by a break is we, we, we look at our lives and we go, where am I, where am I, where do I tend to focus all my time and energies on? Okay, I need a break from that. So I need to get away from that. The same can go if you're a uh, an extrovert, someone who loves crowds, someone whose job requires you to be around people all day. Well, at night, on the weekend, you're probably going to need a break from that. In the same way, if you're an introvert, someone who has a job that requires you, maybe you work from home, you don't see people on a typical basis, I think rest and refreshment for you would look like dinner with friends on a Friday night and a good conversation. So you need to keep in mind that you are a created being who has weaknesses and has a mind and body that needs to be refreshed and reinvigorated from time to time. You will get burnt out if you spend all of your time working. If you're all your time, all you're doing 10, 12, 14 hours a day is writing or, you know, uh, uh, doing something with computers and you never go out into God's creation. At the same time, if you just 
push your body so hard, it will break down unless you have times to rest it and refresh your mind. So think about your own life and how you can balance those, um, understanding your weaknesses. Um, Jesus did this so well. He was such a master at it. Fourth and final point here on uh, our first act. How do we embrace our creatureliness with our bodies? This one is you embrace interruptions to your rest. There are going to be times when rest is going to be impossible. And you know what? That's okay. Uh, My wife and I certainly understand this. We have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old. There are nights we don't get to sleep. And that just comes with the territory. And that's okay. God understands that. So there are going to be times when your rest is going to be interrupted. Let's go back to Matthew 14, verse 13. I want to read the rest of this to you. So we started saying Jesus withdrew from there to a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now let's pick up second half of this verse. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd And look at this. I love this. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus does. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus has just had no one, probably no one that we know of in scripture that Jesus loved more than John the Baptist has died at this point. He just had his cousin, his beloved cousin die. He's mourning the death of his friend. He's up on a mountain praying. He needs that rest so badly. That time of refreshment is why Jesus is there. And the crowd hunts him down. They come and find him. They're desperate for healing. And what does Jesus do when he looks on him? Does he get frustrated? Does he say, guys, I've got to get a break here. Come on, I'll deal with you tomorrow. No, it says he had compassion on them. He responded with compassion and love. There are going to be times in your life when love trumps rest. Love of brother is going to be more important than your own rest. So you cannot idolatrize rest. You can't see it as the most important thing in your life. If you don't get eight hours of sleep, that's okay. Now, you need to set your life to make that a priority. But if circumstances interrupt that, particularly if those circumstances are dealing with you needing to love someone, a loved one has a crisis. You have to take them to the hospital. Uh, you know, a, a sickness of a kid, you have to be up with them all night. Um, it, there can be a, a myriad of reasons that we have to neglect rest. And that's okay. So you need to understand in your life that rest is interruptible if it's for the sake of love of others. And you need to be willing to do that. Do not make rest. Don't be selfish with your rest. See your rest as an opportunity to serve others. You're resting eight hours a day because it maximizes your ability to love others. That's why you do it. You're taking a break and you're going to exercise because it allows you to love others. I've found that in my life. Exercise is a big part for me, of my health. Um, If I do not exercise regularly, I'm not as equipped to love my family and care for all the people in my life that I love and I need to care for. Uh, So it's not selfish for me to exercise. But if there's a day where I can't exercise because, you know, something happened, I need to be willing to let that go and say, that's totally fine. I'll pick it up tomorrow uh, because this person needs me today, right now in this moment. So, Part one, act one, we've looked at the importance of resting our bodies because we are creatures made by God. Now let's go to act two. Act two is 
or point two is rest is trusting wholly in the grace of Jesus Christ. Our souls in our country are broken. We live in an age of anxiety. I just read a statistic recently and it terrified me. Uh, teenage girls in 2021 coming out of the pandemic. Uh, so that would have been a lot of you. So this survey was taken in 2021 and we're just getting the results of it have come in in the last few months. Uh, this big company, I think it was the Pew uh, Research Company did this survey. One in four teenage girls seriously considered suicide in the year 2021. One in four. That's a staggering number. It's a terrifying number. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's social media, which requires uh, uh, comparison, and teenage girls aren't typically uh, equipped to deal with that. Um, There's a lack of sleep can play into that. Uh, There's isolation that came through the pandemic and all those things. So there's a lot of things that go into it. But the result is an anxious restlessness among young people in our country. The numbers are a little better for men, but they're still really bad. So we live in an age where our souls are not at rest and they are not at peace. And I think a lot of it is because our culture tells us, and it's going to tell you, that you have to be all these things. You know, you've got to, you've got to impress others. You've got to, you've got to achieve something great with your life. You, you've got to, you can't be like a bigot. You can't get canceled. So you're always worried about your words and uh, you got to justify yourselves in the eyes of the world. We always feel this pressure. You have to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of your life. You know, you only live once. We feel that pressure, don't we? To even have a good time becomes like a matter of anxiety for us. Does all that work? Does all that striving, that hustle culture satisfy us? It does not. You need, uh, I, the world would have you believe that all you need is work a little harder, strive a little longer, push yourself a little further and you can have it all. And it's created this exhaustion among so many of us. Um, And I think what it's happened with a lot of uh, young people in the church is they have started to incorporate that mindset into their relationship with God. And they look at Christian life and they assume because we're all born legalists that I need to do more to impress God. I've got to work a little harder so that he likes me. I know I'm a, I'm a screw up. I, I did that thing a few nights ago. I know, I'm sorry, God. I know I'm, I'm so, you must not like me. And so we have this sense of uh, restlessness with our relationship with God because we think we always have to be earning his favor. And I think a lot of Christians, particularly young people, leave the Christian faith, not because they don't believe that Jesus is real, but because they don't understand how they can please him. They don't understand. They think they have to do all of these things and those, they don't know how to accomplish all of them. They're exhausted by this sense of work and earning God's favor. You don't have to do any of that. The rest for your soul happens when you go to Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 11, a couple chapters back from where we've been. Matthew 11. Verses 28 through 30. The end of the chapter. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Let's read these remarkable verses together. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a remarkable thing for Jesus to say, for him to say, come to me, 
any of you who are weary, who are frustrated, who cannot seem to get anything right, I will give you rest for your souls. In the context of this passage, right before and after it, Jesus is fighting with the religious leaders. Um, We see this in verses 16 through 19, just before in Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus says, um, but to whom shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The religious leaders, the legalists of that day had said, oh, look at John. He like, he wears these weird outfits and eats locusts. He's crazy. So they had criticized him for that. Well, then Jesus comes and a tax collector and a sinner says, come have dinner with me. And Jesus says, sure. Eats all their food, has a good time. The man could eat. He liked it. And so then they criticize him for that. And Jesus is like, you can't win with you people. You can't win. There's nothing I can do to please you. And that's what he's saying in this text. Uh, There's nothing he or John could do to satisfy the religious leaders. Um, And this is the heart of a legalist. The heart of a legalist, uh, there's nothing that can be done to satisfy uh, your your sense of uh, performance before God. Um, It's an exhausting way to live. Um, And then after Jesus calls the weary to come to him at the end of Matthew 11, we see in Matthew 12, 1 through 14, Uh, There's an encounter where Jesus is walking through a field on the Sabbath and his disciples are eating some food. They're plucking the grains uh, from out and they're they're just having a little snack there as they're walking through. And it's on the Sabbath and the religious leaders don't like this. They say, look, your disciples, in verse number two, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those are with him? And so they go on to have this long conflict out there about the Sabbath and Jesus hates this. He, he hates the guy who it's like love for others. Okay, so they're just trying to have a meal. And then later in Matthew, uh, Matthew 12, Jesus will heal a guy on the Sabbath and they'll get mad at him for that. So we've got Jesus providing a meal. We've got Jesus healing a man. And we've got these dorks running up to him with the rule book saying like, ah, see, CR 4109 says you can't do that. So stop doing that. And Jesus is like, no, you made that rule up. That rule is not in my word. And he says that basically they have allowed their legalistic heart to trump love for others. The point of the law is to love God and love others. That's why we're here. That's why the law exists. And so often we in our hearts can come up with all these other things we have to do to please God. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. They were telling everybody, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this to please God. And it was exhausting. It was exhausting. So before and after Jesus issues this uh, um, command for people to come to him who are weary and heavy laden, we see these Pharisees heaping burdens on people, making them feel so like they can't do anything to ever please God. And Jesus says, no, All of these legalistic burdens that you feel, I will take them away if you just come to me. If you just come to me, then you will find the rest for your souls. I think all of us here are born thinking we have to earn God's favor. We are all born legalists thinking, if I just do this extra thing, God's going to love me. 
The problem is you can never do enough because you can never be righteous enough because God is perfectly righteous and you'll never attain his standard. You need Christ to come in and do what he did on the cross, which is wipe away all of your sins and make it so you don't have to pay for a single one of them. And not only does he do that, then he loves you. He delights in you. Christ loves his bride. He loves giving them good things. And we forget that so often. We think we have to earn Christ's delight in us. We don't. Christ has given his delight to us when he chooses us and elects us and calls us as his own to, to himself. So Jesus, there's a na- another text I want to point to this. So Jesus is calling us to come to him in Matthew 11. And I want to go ahead to Hebrews, if you'll follow me quickly, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, we get another aspect of uh, Jesus saying to come to him, all who are heavy, weary and heavy laden. Uh, Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. I won't read all of them. Let's, uh, but here it's saying, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the, that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what is he talking about there? What's the reference back to? In Numbers four fourteen, that describes when the Israelites were going into the promised land and they sent in 12 spies and the 12 spies come back and they say, we can't, we can't do this. They've got giants over there. The people are way too intimidating. They freak out. Um, they get really anxious. They, 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 they want to go back to Egypt. They actually want to go back into slavery. That's, what, uh, that's where the people are when they realize that they are giants. They, they have completely stopped trusting in the Lord and in his strength and his power to provide for them. Um, they had so many burdens because they thought they had to defeat their enemies with their own strength. They forgot that God was going to fight for them. Um, and so the writer of Hebrews goes to apply this to salvation by works. He equates the promised land that Israel was going to uh, strive for with the rest that we experience when we come to Christ. And he says that those who enter his rest have rested from their works. They have stopped trusting themselves for salvation. We see that in Hebrews 4, 11. They have strived, they've stopped uh, uh, they've ceased striving after works. So for us, there's two elements of our salvation. We don't have to earn it. Um, and two, as we go forward in our lives, we can continue to trust Christ and rest in him day by day. For the justification we'll experience in heaven, Christ has earned that for us. And then for the day-to-day trust in him and living life, we can do not what the Israelites did where they were anxious and didn't believe that God's strength. We can trust in him to provide for us and guide us, guide us along the way. We can rest in him. Psalm 62.1 says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I will never be shaken. If you want to show the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, show them the rest you have in him. Show them the peace you have. Because we live in a restless age, people are going to see that and they're going to be attracted to that. They're going to wonder, how can I have that? I want to be at peace like that person is. I want to have rest where that person is. They're not anxious. They're not worried. 
you can show the world a soul at rest. And by doing that, proclaim the gospel to them because you do not have to work for your righteousness. You do not have to work for heaven. Christ has earned it for you. And because he's earned it for you, you can rest in what he's done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the rest that you provide in Christ. Thank you for uh, giving us Christ so that as he calls us to him, we can come to him and know the true rest that comes from salvation. Lord, you've given us your grace. What more could we ask for? What more do we, what more do we need? And I pray for these students as they leave here that they would delight in the salvation that you've brought to them. They would rest in your work, finished work on the cross. And Lord, that they would understand that they are creatures made in your image, but made with limits. And that they daily need to depend on you and accept their limitations and embrace the joy of sleep, embrace the joy of your creation. Um, Take breaks when they need to, Lord, um, and prioritize loving others. I pray you would help them to do that as they leave here today. Lord, and we pray all these things in the matchless name of your son who calls all of us to come to him and to lay our burdens on him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's in his name we pray, amen.